The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Anna Hickey. Associate Editor for Communications, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 15, 2024. Earlier this month, the United States Supreme Court agreed to review the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling that former President Trump is disqualified from holding the office of the presidency under the Insurrection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and therefore his name may not appear on the state's 2024 presidential primary ballot. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from March 4, 2017, featuring a talk with Benjamin Wittes, hosted by Just Security and the Center on Law and Security at the New York University School of Law, on what happens if citizens can't take the president's oath of office seriously, the foundational role of the presidential oath, and Trump's apparent inability to honor his oath. After his talk, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Ryan Goodman to continue this conversation. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 4th, 2017. Yesterday, Just Security and the Center on Law and Security at New York University School of Law hosted Benjamin Wittes for a conversation on a crucially important question about the path of the Trump presidency so far. What happens when we can't take the president's oath of office seriously? Ben's talk, and his post-talk discussion with Just Security's Ryan Goodman, involves a new essay by him and myself on the foundational role of the presidential oath in holding together many of our functional assumptions about how government works. We argue that these assumptions have served us well for most of the Republic, but Trump's apparent inability to honor his oath is causing them to crumble apart, with potentially serious consequences. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 211. What happens when we don't believe the president's oath? I wish I were here under circumstances sort of more fun than, than attacking the president, um, which those of you who know me know that sort of like attacking people personally and questioning their integrity generally sort of isn't my thing. Um, a few years ago, uh, this was, I, I guess, late in the Bush administration, uh, my, my good friend Peter Berkowitz uh, uh, was ruminating to me about 
uh, Bush hatred, which I think he coined the term Bush derangement syndrome. And uh, Peter's uh, contention, which I fervently disbelieved at the time, was that uh, Bush hatred was qualitatively different from all other presidential hatreds. Uh, and his argument was, it's a very interesting argument, that hating the president is a very old thing. And every president has constituencies that really, really hate him. But that liberal hatred of George W. Bush was different in that people considered the hatred a mark of their own virtue. And that there was something, it, it, it showed them to be a... a a, a part of civilized society that they harbored this hatred. And I uh, believed, and I argued to Peter, and I still believe that Peter was completely wrong about this. And my view of the matter was that actually all presidents, uh, ever, every president since, except for George Washington, has had mobilized constituencies uh, in the United States that actively hate him. Uh, every president uh, um, uh, has had his legitimacy questioned. Uh, every uh, president has been at some level accused of some kind of treason or betraying the values of the country. And that one of the creatures of the hatred is that every constituency that hates the president believes that there is something profoundly different about their experience of, uh, about the moment that they're in from every previous example of presidential hatred. And in fact, it's not ever true. Uh, it's all the same. And Peter and I argued about this for a, lo a, a long time, and we never, we never come to, came to a resolution about uh, Bush hatred. But I say that as a long wind-up to say that I'm really aware that what I'm about to say, everything I'm about to say, is an example of the trap that I accused Peter of falling into. That is, believing that there's something profoundly different about the moment that you're in uh, with respect to the president whom you confront. And believing that that uh, moment is... Uh, a, a uniquely or for the uh, unprecedentedly peculiar and dangerous moment. Uh, and I know I told Peter that there's nothing new under the sun and that every generation thinks their, uh, their situation with respect to their president is different. And I guess what I want to try to convince you of is that this time it's really different. Um, and that, um, you know... Uh, aware that I am uh, stepping into the trap that uh, I set for Peter, let me just say uh, I'm going to jump into the trap, leap head first into it, and say that I think what is different about Donald Trump is that there are a large number of people, and I am one of them, who do not believe the integrity of his oath of office and actually do not believe that when he swore an oath to uh, preserve and protect the Constitution of the United States, that he is even morally, emotionally capable of swearing that oath, let alone uh, swearing it with, with real meaning. Uh, so let me back up a little bit. Uh, the day after the election, I wrote a post on lawfare for which I got a lot of criticism. And I want to I start by quoting the post and then talk a little bit about the criticism 
Talk a little bit, bit about why I think I'm right and all the critics were wrong. Uh, so I wrote the following. The following is a paragraph that, that upset people. Trump's election will fundamentally change my work on this site over the next few years, and probably off the site too, because at least for me, Trump does not enter office with a presumption of regularity in his work. He does not enter office with a presumption that as president he will pursue a vision of what national security means that is remotely related to my own or that he will do so in a rational fashion or even that he and I share a common idea of what aspects of this nation we are trying to secure. So uh, this provoked a real reaction and uh, I'll, I'll satisfy myself with quoting one tweet which was from Glenn Greenwald uh, who, uh, Glenn's not my biggest fan in the world, um, but he, um, he tweeted, this is the skepticism that citizens and especially journalists should apply to all presidents, but either way, welcome Benjamin Wittes. Now, I think this is a really interesting thing. It, it, it gets to the question, is Trump just another president? And should journalists, and I'm only sort of a journalist, Shane Harris, my, my journalist colleague, likes to call me a defrocked journalist. Um, I think there's some truth to that. Um, but, you know, should people, analysts, journalists, operate with a presumption of regularity in presidential behavior? And where does that presumption come from? And the more I thought about this question and the reaction that Glenn and others had to, to what I posted, the more I, first of all, came to the conclusion that, yes, it's perfectly appropriate to give a presumption of regularity to the president's behavior. In the judicial context, we call that deference, right? In uh, the journalistic context, we call that not making up problems where there aren't any, right? If the president says something and you have no reason to believe that it's not true, you can just kind of assume that it's probably true. Um, Now, there may come a point where there's some issue raised about it. But, you know, when Barack Obama would say something factual, I didn't, you know, immediately reach for my wallet, right? And when George W. Bush would make a factual comment, I didn't immediately ask the question, wait a minute, is he lying? Um, So this presumption of regularity comes from the oath. It comes from the fact that the person who's made this comment uh, or who's taken this action is somebody who has stood in front of the nation and sworn an oath. And the oath, the text of the oath is written out in the Constitution. It's actually specified, the words of it. Uh, So it's not merely the election. It's the election as solemnized by a public ritual act. And from that, we derive certain assumptions about the way the presidency, about a certain set of moral virtues and a certain set of behaviors that we can associate with the presidency. Um, And what lay behind that paragraph when I wrote it, and I hadn't thought about it when I wrote it, I thought about it after the fact, but why am I not willing to give Donald Trump a presumption of regularity in all kinds of areas where I have normal presidents? The answer is because I don't believe he is one. I don't believe his oath is meaningful. Uh, And that actually affects the entire way you interact with the presidency. And I want to suggest that a huge amount of the turmoil that we've seen over the last five weeks 
is a function of the fact that my reaction isn't remotely unusual. And that, in fact, that doubt about Trump's oath is what's driving the astonishing judicial reaction. The amazing flurry of leaks that we've seen from his own bureaucracy and from the absolute, and the absolute glee with which the press has uh, uh, reported on and ridiculed and uh, uh, identified misstatements and policy foibles and, and, and uh, actions on the part of the government. So before I go on, I should say that Everything I'm going to talk about here today, I'm, I'm presenting this work, but uh, I, I had a co-author on this project, which is going on, on up on Lawfare now, uh, and she's sitting over there. Uh, and a lot of what I'm about to say is, is, is very much as much, the, is, is as much the thinking and, and work of Quinta Jurassic as it is of myself. So up to now, I, this is my own psychodrama. But uh, from here on in, insofar as I'm describing actual work that we did, it was very much shared work, and, I, and, and uh, a lot of it was hers. Um, okay, so let's start with the question, is this irrational? Is, you know, president, everybody, lots of presidents are hated, right? And it's, and, and it's often quite irrational. Um, Barack Obama, remember, was a foreign-born, scary Muslim, um, and we don't say, well, well, therefore, there's a legitimate question as to his illegitimacy, right? We say, that's stupid and racist, and you shouldn't think that. Um, I want to suggest that there are at least four reasons, and there may be more than four, uh, that are contributing to people's doubts about Trump's oath. Uh, and I don't want to spell them out in any detail, but I want to tick them off. So number one is the uh, sustained spree of highly erratic behavior that casts doubt on his own understanding of the weight of the office that he holds. Um, so Quinta and I made a little list of these, uh, you know, and uh, we, we, we identify them all in, or not them all, but a, a smattering of them in the paper. I won't go through them here. Um, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of them. Uh, and some of them, there's, you know, the tweets to start. But there's uh, also the, you know, sustained, you know, wh- when you campaign, doubt, you know, raising questions about whether you'll even serve as president if elected, right? Um, you raise questions about how serious you are about the office, um, when you say you'll accept the result of the election if you happen to win it, you raise questions about the sincerity of your commitment to the office. Uh, when you promise to prosecute your opponent, uh, you raise questions about whether you're capable faithfully executing uh, the office. I could go on. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of these examples. Um, but, you know... Just moral seriousness and appreciation of the weight of his office, it's just not his thing, right? And I think that has affected the way a huge number of people understand his oath. Uh, So relatedly, this is also somebody who on numerous occasions promised to abuse the powers of his office. So his campaign promises were actually on a sustained and systematic level inconsistent with the oath. 
He promised to commit war crimes. He promised abusive prosecutions. He promised to go after the press. And so you do, when you listen to his oath, you are forced to say, wait a minute, how does this oath interact with everything else I've heard this person say? Number three, there's the small matter of his uh, sprawling business interests and undisclosed finances. Now, you know, I'm not a, an ethicist by any means, but I do think when you have a person who we all know to have extensive business interests abroad, who doesn't do basic uh, disclosure of basic financial information of the type that other presidents have done, and particularly when those concerns combine with Uh, persistent anxieties about his relationship with a hostile foreign power, Uh, you will inevitably raise questions about uh, conflicts of interest and specifically conflicts of interest relative to the oath. So somebody could reasonably ask when you promise faithfully to execute the office of the president, yes, but what other interests will you also be serving? Uh, And then finally, and to my mind most importantly, there's the issue of Trump's uh, rather awkward relationship with the concept of truth. Uh, So, you know, Trump often gets accused of being a liar. But uh, Quinto wrote a piece, which, you know, a lot of you probably have read, uh, that makes the argument, and I think very persuasively, that what he actually is is not a liar but a bullshitter. And so she's using the term bullshit in the sense of, of, of the, the, the famous Frankfurt essay. Um, and, you know, the distinction here is important, right? A liar knows the truth and is attempting to mislead you about it, right? And in defying the truth, the liar is in some sense homage to it. The bullshitter is just making up whatever facts he needs, right? He's saying whatever he needs to say in a convenient moment. Um, and so when you put all those four things together, I think a reasonable person watching Donald Trump take the oath, and I I'm, hope I'm a reasonable person, but this was certainly my reaction, it makes you ask, what does it even mean for a person who kind of contradicts himself and is radically over the place in a hundred ways who says all kinds of crazy things, who promises to abuse the office, who has undisclosed uh, financial entanglements all over the world, and who makes up whatever facts he needs at any given moment in time, what does it even mean for such a person to promise faithfully to execute the office of the president? You can ask, by the way, the same question about the take care clause of the Constitution. How does a bullshitter take care that the laws are faithfully executed? And the reason, of course, is that the concept of taking care, right, the concept of faithful execution implies some sort of known structure of meaning. And this is exactly what he has undermined in a thousand interviews, in a thousand speeches, uh, and with a lot of promises and conduct. And so I want to say in, in preemptive defense of the, the 
the, the throwing Peter Berkowitz back in my face and saying, you know, hey, you think this situation is different. There's really nothing new under the sun. I would say, give me another example of a president who walked into office and swore the oath in which you could list that set of four or some comparable set of four reasons that the public had to doubt that oath. I'm going to talk briefly about the oath itself. The oath is not a rock star of the Constitution, you know. So when, when we started doing this project, when we started writing it last week, uh, we'd been kind of doing research on it for a while, I, I impulsively put up on Twitter a little poll for people who had, uh, you know, taken con law at some point. And I asked... Um, Question for people who have taken a con law class, how much discussion did you have of the presidential oath clause of the Constitution? Uh, So this is admittedly not a scientific sample, but uh, 1,200 people did answer this. And 70% of them said none, 20% of them said brief mention, 7% said some, and 3% said lots. So uh, you can say that 97% of the population that has taken con law did not have a lot of discussion of the presidential oath in the context of doing so. Uh, There's a reason for that. There's no case law really about the oath. It's not a a big sort of piece of our collective constitutional consciousness. Uh, And of course, it's non-justiciable, right? So there's a reason it doesn't show up all the time in, in cases. Uh, And I want to suggest that's really deceptive, that it's actually the glue that holds together a lot of our expectations of the presidency. Um, So I was thinking about the presumption of regularity in connection with that paragraph that I wrote. And I thought, you know, I know a recent national security case that actually turned on a presumption of regularity. And it's a Guantanamo case called Latif. It's a case that earlier in the history of lawfare, you know, we spent a lot of time on. And, you know, Latif is an interesting case. You know, I, I won't go into the details of it, but it, it actually literally turned on whether, the, uh, whether an a, a, a intelligence officer's report could be, should be presumed Uh, to be an accurate reflection of certain interviews. And the court, uh, Janice Rogers Brown, writing for the court, determined, uh, and this was quite controversial, and I actually objected to it, but um, but I want to read what she wrote. Um, It's actually good law in the D.C. Circuit. Quote, in the absence of clear evidence to the contrary, courts presume that public officers have properly discharged their official duties. This presumption of regularity is founded on interbranch and intergovernmental comedy. Um, Now, what everyone thinks of Latif, and I have my problems with it, you know, that's an astonishing statement if you all of a sudden believe that uh, you don't trust the president's oath. Because that presumption of regularity comes directly from the oath of office. Um, so if you follow the, uh, the line of cases cited in Latif back a hundred years, you get to uh, um, the case of Mott v. Martins. And, you know, these are cases, and, and, you know, these are cases that really talk about the link between 
the presidency and a certain public virtue, right? That public virtue, that idea that you defer to the president is a function of the fact that he's an independent constitutional actor who swore an oath. So Joseph's story uh, around the same time as, as, as Mott, you know, writes of the presidential oath that no man can well doubt the propriety of placing a president of the United States under the most solemn obligation to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. It is a suitable pledge of his fidelity and responsibility to his country, and it creates upon his conscience a deep sense of duty by an appeal at once in the presence of God and man to the most sacred and solemn sanctions which can operate upon the human mind. This is where deference from. This is where the idea of a presumption of regularity comes from. And if you don't believe the oath, then the basis for it disappears. So in Martin v. Mott, uh, which is this, uh, the original source of the idea, the translation of that of, into a presumption of regularity, the court writes that every public officer is presumed to act in obedience to his duty until the contrary is shown. And it writes of deference to the executive. And think about how reasonable this sounds if you trust the president's oath and how unreasonable it sounds if you don't. That while there's a potential for abuse in, in the exercise of presidential power, quote, the high qualities which the executive must be presumed to possess of public virtue and honest devotion to the public interests are mitigating factors in that regard. Now, what if you must not necessarily presume that those qualities are possessed? Um, a few years later, the Supreme Court, you know, somewhat disreputable Chief Justice Taney, uh, wrote that the elevated office of the president chosen as he is by the people of the United States and the high responsibility he could not fail to feel when acting in a case of so much moment appear to furnish as strong safeguards against a willful abuse of power as human prudence and foresight could well provide. Again, could not fail to feel. Do you believe that in, the, in a context in which you don't have confidence in the underlying oath. So what does it look like when a large swath of the public, including major actors in our constitutional system, don't believe the president's oath? I'm going to wrap up here and just say it looks like the last five weeks, right? It looks like a situation in which the judiciary doesn't even pause over the question of deference to the president. You know, we've had an executive order, and I'm, I'm not saying this in criticism of the courts. We had an executive order in an area of a very broad grant of statutory authority to the president, in which the president asserted a highly significant national security interest, and courts all over the country tripped over each other to enjoin or, or, or you know, or put a restraining order on, on that. Um, it looks like a situation in which uh, you can't stop the leaks even long enough to 
from within the bureaucracy, um, even long enough to figure out how many of them there are. Uh, you know, the, 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 I, I've been a Washington-based writer slash journalist for a long time. I've never seen an environment in which it's easier to get interesting information out of the government. Just, I've just never seen anything like it. And um, I believe the reason for those two facts are exactly the same, which is that the way you interact with the presidency when you believe in the sincerity of the oath of office is, as a judge, you have something to defer to. You have a a concurrent uh, constitutional actor uh, who has certain textually committed powers, certain delegated powers of Congress, and you interact entirely differently with that actor when you don't believe that the glue that holds, that, that binds you to that deference is there. And if you're a mid-level actor in any, of, any number of agencies, what reason do you have to keep the president's secrets? Um, I'm not talking about classified information here. I'm talking about any information. This is theoretically a vertically integrated organization. Right, the unitary executive. And the reason that you have as a mid-level staffer to carry out policies that you may disagree with, policies that you may think you could have designed better, is that the person at the top of that hierarchy is not merely elected by the people, but that election is solemnized in that oath. And the moment you don't believe that oath, why, what reason do you have to obey? What reason do you have to carry out the policy? And finally, and I'll stop here, I think you see, in, you see it in the reaction of the press. Because in fact, while Glenn Greenwald attacked me or criticized me for saying that we attach a presumption of regularity to presidential actions and statements in the press, He's wrong. We actually do. And, one of the, and we do that in deference to the office, in deference to the fact exactly what Story was writing about, that there is some presumption of civic virtue that attaches to the person who occupies that office. And the thing, the glue that causes that attachment is the oath. And the moment you don't believe that oath... Why not check everything he says? Why not presume that if something comes out of his mouth, it's actually of of negative probative value as to his truth, that, 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 that he said it? Why not assume that, you know, why do you assume that it carries any weight at all? Now, David Frum, who was a speechwriter for, for George W. Bush, was on uh, Mike Pesca's podcast the other day, made a really illuminating comment, which was that there was a whole team of researchers in the Bush White House whose job it was was to make sure that no false words ever came out of the president's mouth. Uh, and that you know, if the president made a mistake and said something that didn't prove to be true, that was a big problem. Um, and... 
You know, that's a reflection of George W. Bush's civic commitment to his oath. And the moment you don't... There's no law that says you have to do that, right? You just... You do it because you made a commitment. Uh, And the press, like judges, like the bureaucracy, is responsive to how sincerely... Uh, you are trying to interact with them on good, in, in, in a good faith basis. So I will stop there and uh, look forward to discussing any or all of this with you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. 
and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Um, so it's a, it's a great joy to have Ben here with us, and especially because of all the kinds of synergies that exist between uh, LAWFARE and just security and trying to just elevate the debate, but let alone having shared impulses in this particular climate that we're in. It's also not a joy to have been here because of the senses that bring us together, different circumstances. Um, so I thought just to start out by talking a little bit about different dimensions to the piece that you've written, and I've had the benefit of being able to read it uh, beforehand. And I think of it as having three different types of claims or three different types, three different parts. One is descriptive, so it describes what's going on, what are the effects with the within the judiciary, the press. Another one is predictive, so what would be the long-term legacy effects for the office of the presidency, uh, generations to come potentially. And the third is uh, prescriptive, so part of uh, your opening remarks about how we should think about this president, how you view this president, um, in terms of like recommendations for how others should act and behave. So I just wanted to try to isolate one aspect of this, which is the current public perception of the president and how much that matters to your analysis. Uh, because you could say that it matters a lot what their subjective views are of the president to your descriptive accounts, your predictive account, or maybe it doesn't matter what they believe because yours is an argument about an objective, independent analysis of what is the right way to think of the president. So just to kind of drill down on what the public's perception is, you know, you, in the piece itself you describe his approval ratings are pretty darn low, um, but, and that the deep and profound doubt about this president is not fringe. But I just want to kind of press on that and think about maybe it's more fringe and more elitist than you and I might otherwise assume. 
And so CBS now has this new kind of database, and they've divided up the populace into four groups, according to their statistical analysis. 22, about 22% are true believers in favor of Trump. About 22% are conditional Trump supporters. They may go away from him if he doesn't live up to certain expectations. Then the, on the other side, there's about 22% that are uh, persuadable. So actually might be persuaded in his direction. Then you've got the final quartile about, which is true believers on the other side. They're not going in favor of him. So it's actually that small little group, in a way, or the quarter, that is that profoundly set against this president. He is from the oath onward. And what does that mean? What does it mean that within that group, there's even a smaller subset that kind of agree with your uh, analysis? Right. So first of all, I, let me start by saying I'm not a public opinion expert. And I uh, am uh, leery about tr- uh, confusing my own views, uh, imputing my own views to the public. And so, and it's complicated particularly by the fact that I think if you ask, uh, you know, if you polled people on do you trust Donald Trump's oath of office, they probably, most people probably don't really have a sense of the oath of office as such, right? So, uh, like, I think exactly what question we're asking here is, is a hard one. Um, but let me, let me try to break it out. So first of all, I think... Um, I question his oath of office. Uh, and I think that, that I know for sure because I, I, I have plumbed my own brain on the subject and I, I actually have real doubts about whether he's capable of swearing an oath to anything, let alone anything other than himself. Um, secondly, I observe that lots and lots of actors are in the system are behaving in a fashion consistent with the instinct that I have that there is reason to doubt his oath. Third, when I say, is this just the equivalent of people who doubted the legitimacy of Obama or who, you know, there was a big doubt about, by the way, the legitimacy of George W. Bush, too, because of Florida, right? And there was a whole constituency that didn't believe that Florida, that Bush was a properly elected president. And some of you are probably old enough to remember that there was a whole wing of the world that believed that Bill Clinton was dealing drugs out of a air, small air base in, in rural Arkansas and that this somehow made him an illegitimate president. So, right, is this situation objectively different from, you know, from the... Uh, you know, recurrent themes that the, the, the current president, whoever he is, is an illegitimate occupier of, of the White House. And I believe that it is actually objectively different, although not objectively different in a fashion that would be judicially cognizable. I don't doubt that Donald Trump lawfully exercises the powers of the presidency. Um, so, you know, how much does public opinion agree with me about that? I don't know. Um, I, and I, I, I merely know that a lot of people feel really strongly about him uh, in a negative sense. Uh, and that, that to the extent that those actors have the ability to engage the presidency, uh, 
they seem to be engaging it in a fashion that's quite different from whether from the way they and similar actors engaged the prior two or three or four administrations of my adult lifetime, and um, and so I, I'm not sure I know how to translate that into a numerical uh, a, a, a numerical assessment of where public opinion is on this. Um, so I guess another question is to focus on why you focus on the oath. Um, in the sense that you've just described, um, many people in the public haven't even thought that question. Um, as you describe in the paper itself, or the essay itself, um, this is not something that is a part of the diet of constitutional discourse or constitutional experts today. It hasn't been for decades. It's almost forgotten uh, the 18th century conception of the social and political significance of the oath compared to the 21st century has got to be vastly different. Um, so that, you know, is this the right proxy? Maybe the oath is um, too narrow, that it's broader than the oath. It's not so specific. It's about other forms of public trust. It's about systemic corruption. Uh, maybe the oath is too broad, not too narrow. So when you point to the judges that have actually pushed back against the administration, especially with the immigration and executive order. They're pretty specific about it, and the briefing is pretty specific. It's about the fact that he failed to engage in any interagency review um, of that executive order, and that's the more specific basis upon which deference in that national security context is predicated. So in that instance, the oath's too broad and rough of a proxy. On the other hand, maybe it's that the oath is actually um, a very valuable heuristic, and the fact that the public hasn't doesn't have this as a core part of its discourse is part of the reason that you want to focus on it. And it has a certain kind of a stickiness to it, just in terms of a framing. Um, thinking about the oath and what it means is part of the kind of re-engagement with civic virtue. So just trying to get a sense of why you focus on the oath. In some ways, it's an oddity, but in other ways, maybe not. It's to rescue it from being an oddity. Well, so, I, you know, it's interesting. I haven't thought about, like, what the de- my debt, my interest in the oath particularly, is the, the history of my interest is, is, is twofold. One is I wrote that paragraph that talked about the presumption of regularity, and I ended up having to think about why do I attach a presumption of regularity to George W. Bush and, and Barack Obama? You know, where does that presumption of regularity come from? And as I asked myself that question, because Glenn Greenwald posed that question, like why are, you know, the implication was, you know, you're willing to be a toady for, for, for these guys. Why not for Donald Trump? And, you know, and, and the answer to that question is, as I thought about it, the civic moment of the oath. And the second reason, uh, which has more to do with Quinta than with me, is that when Quinta was working on her piece about bullshit, she posed the question, you know, can a bullshitter meaningfully take the oath? Now, she also posed the question, which, you know, is more... Uh, you know, arguably more immediate here, which is can the, a bullshitter take care uh, within the meaning of the take care clause? I think they're fundamentally the same question, but one of them is an as-applied question and the other is a general question, right? One of them is the following incident happened. Did the president in that context, uh, you know, take care that the laws were faithfully executed, right? The other is is a you know, is a commit is a general commitment to the office, and the oath is not an oath to apply a particular law in a particular time. It's an oath in general. And so, as you think about Donald Trump taking the uh, taking the office, 
there is that moment where he stands up there and raises his hand and swears that oath. And that question, do you believe him, uh, is, a, is a dagger in my heart, you know, because I don't have a doubt about what the answer is. Um, so I'm going to ask just uh, one more question and then open it up to uh, the audience. So I guess another question is just on the issue of have we ever seen this before? Um, so it might be that you're right, you've never had these kind of four aspects all come together with one president, but are there in fact parts of our history where uh, presidents either were or were at least perceived to be not acting in the interest of the nation? And then on that basis, what can we learn from that? Um, can we learn from that in terms of prescriptively what should people who truly believe that about their president do? Um, and uh, what does it mean about uh, predictively does the system correct for itself when in fact Presidents haven't um, operated in, on the basis of the nation. And just to give you know, examples that include real and perceived, it could be um, Barack Obama is precipitously dr- withdrawing from wars that we should be engaged in because he's uh, worried about his party's uh, political prospects. It could be um, Cheney and Bush are going into war because of Halliburton or because something happened with an assassination attempt by uh, Gaddafi, uh, Gaddafi uh, Saddam Hussein against Bush's father. It could be um, a president who has no regard or a deep disregard for certain parts of our population, African Americans, LGBT. So in those instances in which they're not necessarily serving the nation or the Constitution, um, or that's the perception that people genuinely hold, are there things that we would... Are those examples just under maybe a different scale, but they're definitely about potentially war and peace... Um, are they ones that we can learn something from how the system corrects for itself, how the press learns from experiences, or how people should behave? So it's a really challenging question, and I'm, I'm, I don't know the answer to it, but let me, let me uh, throw some buckshot around it and see, and, and see what I can do. Uh, so are there... I don't know of another example like this where I think you you have so many people responding to the president in this way. And when you look at it, I hope, you know, not uh, with hatred in one's heart, but, you know, and you say, are they behaving irrationally, that there's actually a lot of good reason for them to be behaving the way they are. Um, There certainly are cases where that I know of where huge numbers of people had, you know, grave anxieties about the legitimacy of the president. Um, That characterizes most of the 1790s, right, where, um, or or the the, the sort of second half of the 1790s, where, you know, the Madisonians and 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 the Federalists really thought one another were traitors who were in the pay of and service of foreign powers. And uh, it's also, of course, true of Lincoln, Right. Who, um, you know, who, if you look at the stuff that was being written about Lincoln, people believed he was trying to, you know, force interracial uh, marriage on people. Right. And, you know, there was a, you know, it was uh, and that that was a a deep illegitimacy from from the point of view of a lot of his critics. And, of course, it triggered secession. Um, And so I, I, I don't think we are there is nothing unusual about there being profound questions about the legitimacy of a president. Uh, and, of course, in this case, I don't think, with the exception of people who really have a problem with the Electoral College, I don't think there is a serious question about the legitimacy 
of Donald Trump's presidency. Um, he was elected president under the rules of the system that we have. I think there's a serious question about his moral and uh, rule of law capacity to honor the office that he was legitimately elected to. And that's a, a very complicated problem for those of us who, you know, believe in elections, but also believe in civic virtue and believe that that oath is actually a civic, of civic importance. How should people behave in this situation? Uh, I don't know. And, you know, one of the things that we try to do in this piece is to try to spell out what some of the scenarios are for a kind of post-oath presidency. So one possibility is that we simply, this is the new normal. We, we, you have to imagine the presidency de- developing in this direction, and it's, it's, a, it's a presidency in which we have no expectation of civic virtue in the president in which you know, everything Story wrote is wrong, was right then, wrong now, you know, and everything that, um, uh, and that we should, and the, what follows from that is that there's no deference due the presidency, right? You, uh, you know, all review is de novo review. Um, the press should assume that every word that comes out of the president's mouth is a lie until, un, un, until you independently verify that it's true. You know, that's not the way the press normally behaves. Um, and by the way, uh, bureaucratic actors uh, need feel no loyalty to the executive hierarchy. They should obey orders only to the extent that they're forced to and that you'll really need highly coercive mechanisms to prevent them from leaking things because, they, because you can count on no degree of loyalty to the extent they disagree with what you're doing. Now, to describe that as the, the presidency is, I think, a pretty hateful uh, vision of it. But I do think if you, if you imagine the president, a president utterly without civic virtue over a long period of time, that is where it'll end up. So possibility number two is uh, that we have a real counter, uh, you know, a counter-reformation, right? That, you know, the next president takes the oath really seriously and is keen to be not merely to uh, honor it, but to always be seen to honor it. And, you know, Nixon really modeled the subsequent behavior of the presidency on you know, all sorts of abuse of power matters by negative example. And maybe Trump is modeling the direction that the exec, the opposite of the direction, the direction that the executive will go in reaction to his own behavior. Um, And then there's a third possibility, which is actually the one I suspect is most likely and I'm in some ways most afraid of, which is that you formally adopt number two, Uh, The next president is very careful. But we have this memory. And the memory is that all these things that we thought were inevitable civic virtue components of the presidency are actually nonsense. And that you don't actually have to behave that way. And that, or you can behave that way most of the time, but 
then kind of, but ultimately you don't owe anything to the oath or to your office. Uh, and I think that is a you know, very dangerous directional uh, uh, norm erosion. And I think you know, having a demonstration project that, that, that you can do this will have a very long tail, or I fear it will. So uh, questions? In my mind, the uh, presidency, to me, lost its legitimacy around the time of the Vietnam War. And there are millions of people in this country for whom uh, that resonates. Uh, uh, my question is, with respect to this president, uh, isn't there something else which is, uh, in the 21st century, doesn't the president have what, what I guess would by now amount to a constitutional responsibility uh, to avoid nuclear war? And isn't that the, the major problem, uh, that, from my point of view, that's the major problem I see with Trump, is that I don't think he's capable uh, of being able to avoid nuclear war in a tight situation. But, hasn't the, uh, but in the 21st century, haven't we come to the point where uh, the duty of the president to keep the peace is, in fact, uh, if, not, if not written into the Constitution, uh, is it not something which is essential to the survival of democracy, to the survival of this nation and the world? Um, so on, on, on your first point, uh, I agree with you that the presidency has never fully recovered from the Vietnam, uh, in prestige anyway, from the Vietnam uh, war era. And yet I don't think that entirely uh, answers the question about what is different about, uh, about the current environment or if something is different about the current environment. Uh, you know, there have been presidents that I have supported and opposed more and less. Uh, and I've never felt myself in the position where I fundamentally doubted that the individual who held the office had sworn that oath sincerely and was doing to the best of his ability the, the job that he had undertaken. And, and I think, you know, so you're addressing an underlying dynamic of loss of prestige in the office, with which I agree. Um, but that still raises the question of, of how you engage emotionally and intellectually and, and institutionally with the particular office as occupied by the particular person at any given time. Uh, is there an obligation to prevent nuclear war? Yeah. Um, that's, you know, a, well, and a, ask another way to think about that is, could you possibly imagine considering a success a president who did not meet that obligation? And, and so to ask that question is really to answer it, I think. I'm interested in uh, your, your view of the deep state issue that we seem to be facing at this point. It's subsumed in your discussion of the willingness of mid- mid-level actors to keep the president's promises, as you stated, with the with the gloss that you gave gave that, but uh, there's a particularly uh, coolish whiff about the dribble of leaks, particularly from the national on the national security side, and I wonder when when and if you think there's an obligation 
of people who have uh, bully pulpits, maybe like people, bloggers on lawfare, um, to suggest that at a certain point, regardless of their view of the president, um, they're in, you know, that sort of a dribble coup is, is ba- is, has its own set of dangers associated with it, that any democratic dangers associated with it. So uh, a few things. Um, one is um, I actually believe that many fewer of these leaks are coming from the intelligence community than people believe or understand. Um, and uh, I think if you look at the way a lot of these stories are sourced, uh, I think a lot of them are probably coming from uh, former officials uh, who were briefed on things before they left office. And I think very few of them are what people think of as the deep state, that is the permanent bureaucracy of the various agencies that are dishing on. I also think, and this... I'm, I'm making this up, but I do believe it, that, uh, no, it's not bullshit, because bullshit generally doesn't identify itself as such. It, it is speculation. I think, if, I, I think you are likely to see, if anybody is arrested for the classified leaks, that uh, uh, it, they may turn out to be certain current officials with the knives out for one another. Uh, and so I think there are, there are certain, uh, you know, it, it is not, I would be very surprised, for example, if when we do a leak investigation into how General Flynn's, uh, that community, you know, I would be very surprised if there were, that, that turned out to come from the FBI or from the NSA. My guess is it came from either former officials of the last administration or current officials of this administration, maybe who had the knives out for General Flynn. All that said, I agree with you. I don't, you know, look, Lawfare does not publish classified material. Um, and, I, you know, that's actually a point of principle as well as self-interest for us. And I don't believe in blowing sources and methods in, you know, national security programs. Uh, I really don't believe in leaking the contents of FISA intercepts, which, uh, you know, are, that stuff is, you know, protected U.S. person information for a very, very good set of reasons. And General Flynn, whatever one says about him, and I assure you my enthusiasm is under control, is a U.S. person who is protected by FISA, and we should not be leaking information about, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the classified contents of, the classified U.S. person contents of a FISA intercept. That said, if you ask me sociologically what's going on, I, I do observe that the absence of loyalty to the executive branch hierarchy is a major contributing factor in people's willingness to, to, to make what are quite, uh, in, in some instances, quite inappropriate disclosures. One further thing on that, I will point out also that many of the disclosures that have happened are not really inappropriate at all. Relatively few of them actually involve classified information. Uh, the Russia stuff tends to. But most of the stuff that's leaking, the, the, the torrent of leaks is routine policy discussions 
of unclassified material, draft EOs and stuff, uh, that are actually relatively unproblematic from a, you know, what's the damage to anything other than the institutional functioning of the executive branch, which is they can't, you know, at this point, you can't go to the bathroom in the executive branch without writing the Washington Post writing a story about it. And in fact, when the State Department the other day had a, sent around, the, the acting legal advisor sent around a memo about how you shouldn't be leaking, it ended up in the Washington Post in a few hours. And so, you know, there's nothing classified about that. And, you know, so I would draw a distinction between the deep state violating, you know, really important obligations, either from a civil liberties point of view or from a classified information point of view, and a routine communication uh, of stuff that people aren't especially pledged to keep confidential in an environment in which they feel their advice is not, uh, you know, uh, being considered or being uh, appreciated or uh, or even their concerns, uh, legal, moral, and policy, not even being considered. In regards to uh, the president's, uh, if you don't believe the president's oath, and he has openly said with your two points, he has not disclosed his conflict of interest and has chosen to abuse the power that he is, um, do you feel it undermines the oath of anyone he's appointed to, like, let's say, Secretary of uh, the Department of Energy or the EPA or any of those? Uh, do you feel that each person should be judged individually, or does you feel like if you don't believe in the president's oath, it somehow undermines anyone he puts into power as having possible undisclosed conflict of interests or um, might possibly abuse their power? It's a really profound question, and it doesn't have a simple answer. Um, So uh, I believe, without naming names, that there are certain people who are serving at quite senior levels of the government who are doing it out of the highest motives of patriotism and uh, who are whatever they will say, uh, doing God's work in minimizing damage. And I take those people's oaths extremely seriously. Um, And actually, I admire them more for the difficult circumstances in which they're going to end up working and and probably already are working. Um, And... The sad part is that they will be sullied. And, um, you know, Machiavelli said that the prince needs to love his city more than he loves his soul. And these are, this is an example of that. There are people who are going to have their souls tarnished by this exercise. Uh, and we should understand that as a form of, of patriotic service. There are also people who are enthusiastic about the project of, you know, and uh, I, they will also have their souls tarnished. And I am not an admirer, and I do think you have to make a very individualized assessment of why the person is in the job that he or she is in, what role they're playing in that job, and how 
what price, what they are willing to put up with in order to prevent what bad things from happening. And some of those answers to those questions we will not know for many years. Um, And so I think preserving a certain level of agnosticism about how individuals are functioning is probably the better part of valor at this point. Uh, And I think uh, we should probably expect that some people are going to surprise us in both directions. Uh, On that note, please join me in thanking Ben. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Just Security and the Center on Law and Security at NYU, especially to Ryan Goodman and Zachary Goldman, for hosting the event and providing audio. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast via your social networks. And thanks for listening. <laughs>